Our text is uh, Revelation chapter 18, if you'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. Revelation 18. If you are looking on an iPad or tablet or your phone, you might want to make sure it's on vibrate. We call that set to stun, but uh, otherwise it'll go off and you'll be embarrassed. Or it'll go off and you should be embarrassed, but anyway... That's our text. Our topic, an angel announces the fiery destruction of tribulation Babylon, and we see the smoke of her burning. The title of our message, Burn Notice. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we work through the destruction of tribulation Babylon, I pray that you would nevertheless speak to us today in Hanford, California, in Kings County, that we would see, Lord, not so much correlation, but how much you love your believers then and how much you love us now, how you will protect them then and how you are keeping us now. I guess what I'm saying, Lord, is that we we just want to hear from you. We want your spirit to speak to us through this text. Even though on one hand it has nothing to do with us, Lord, Jesus is in it. And in that sense, it has everything to do with us. And so we pray, Lord, for the ministry of your spirit. He is our teacher. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I love those scenes in movies where the hero is surrounded, hopelessly outnumbered, but nevertheless gives his enemies one last chance to surrender. The return of the Jedi has to be in the top 10. As he is being made to walk the plank and is about to be tossed into the Sarlacc in the great pit of Carcoon, Luke Skywalker confidently exclaims, Jabba, this is your last chance. Free us or die. To which Jabba answers, Konita Didi Jedi Sakuta De Kuznuma. Well, that's what he says. R2-D2 then launches Luke his lightsaber, and after a harrowing fracas, Luke and the gang do indeed escape to fight another day. We're going to see a group of surrounded Christians. They will be living in tribulation Babylon. The final version of that city will be the epitome of the evil world system that Satan has been trying to establish for 6,000 years. Although surrounded, the believers will not be defeated. They will come out of Babylon victorious to their heavenly home and inheritance. If believers can be surrounded but remain victorious in tribulation Babylon, so can we today in our world. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you're to remain separated to Jesus while you are surrounded by the world. And number two, you're to remain surrendered to Jesus while you are stressed by the world. Let's take a look first at uh, being surrounded. Do we really think there's enough time to rebuild Babylon in Iraq? Well, yes, we do. And last week I cited several examples of incredibly quick major construction projects in China and in Dubai. By quick, I mean major high-rise buildings built turnkey in less than three weeks' time. If you're still not convinced Babylon will be rebuilt, I should point out that both Isaiah and Jeremiah said that it would. Isaiah, in chapters 13 and 14, prophesied that the city of Babylon would be destroyed and then never again be inhabited. That's something that has not happened. Isaiah plainly says it will happen 
And he says it'll happen in the day of the Lord, which is another name for the tribulation. Jeremiah in chapters 50 and 51 confirms this same scenario for tribulation Babylon. We saw it as a religious center in chapter 17. It's the headquarters of a global coexistence of man-made religions that would exert power over the world's governments for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. In chapter 18, we see the socioeconomic side of tribulation Babylon. And so verse 1, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. After these things means that the city of Babylon will go on into the second half of the tribulation after the Antichrist demands to be worshipped as God and overthrows the religion based in Babylon. Angels are undoubtedly always busy, but they appear especially busy in the tribulation and in the book of the Revelation as a whole as things come to their conclusion. Having great authority reminds us that God delegates tasks to these trustworthy messengers. All the times they appear in Scripture, they faithfully carry out their assigned duties. Too bad so many movies and television shows make angels seem to be kind of stupid. Uh, It's a Wonderful Life comes to mind, Uh, you know, kind of doddering angels. Uh, These are fierce warriors uh, on assignment for God, and they always, always accomplish their purpose for the Lord. Now, we too have been granted authority to proclaim the gospel by which we tell people their sins can be forgiven at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of authority. Let's be busy and let's be faithful in that delegated task. Now, this angel illuminates the earth with his glory. It reminds us that so much is veiled to our perception now. We walk by faith and not by sight. It'll be great in the future to behold things as they are with unveiled senses. But for now, blessed are we who believe without seeing. Verse 2. He cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. The angel announces what the rest of the chapter will describe the burning of Babylon by God just before Jesus Christ returns to the earth in his second coming. The repetition of is fallen may reflect the fact that religious Babylon falls first mid-trib, then the city itself falls as the tribulation ends. Again, we saw this last week in chapter 17, the religious Babylon of the first three and a half years, that system was destroyed by the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation. But the city goes on as his uh, capital, as the center of his kingdom, uh, up until the destruction by the Lord. Apparently, Babylon is going to be used as a prison to incarcerate demons during the 1,000-year reign of the Lord. It's sort of like the King's County of, of its day, surrounded by prisons. I always, people say, hey, what goes on in King's County? I say, well, there's a lot of prisons in King's County. And uh, it's just one of those places. God has an extensive prison system for demons. Earlier in the Revelation, we read about a place called the Abyss. Demons were let out from there to plague the earth. Demons were also incarcerated near the Euphrates River. We saw that in chapter 9. Both Peter and Jude in their New Testament letters describe demonic holding places. And so... 
We understand that a third of the angels followed the devil in his rebellion against God. But among those, there are especially wicked demons whom God has already incarcerated. It sounds kind of funny, doesn't it, to think, well, this is a demon and this is a really, really bad demon. But there are some, and we saw their destruction a little bit earlier in this book. The reference to every unclean and hated bird might be a way of describing demons. More likely, it is describing the reality that after its physical destruction, Babylon will be overrun by scavenging birds and other animals of the like. And so verse 3, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Merchants and merchandise and luxury are themes that repeat throughout this chapter. Babylon is going to have all that the world can offer in terms of both pleasures and possessions. Babylon will dominate as the go-to location during the tribulation. What about this talk of fornication with the city? Well, let me give you what might be a contemporary example. Businesses and organizations, even government agencies, often plan conferences and retreats. Many of you go on annual conferences or retreats for your, uh, your business or your career. And this is just me talking. This is my opinion, so take it as such. I'm always a little taken back when the destination is Las Vegas. Really? Vegas, baby? That's where you're going to have your, uh, just to cho choose something, your teacher's conference? You're going to have it in Vegas? You know, Vegas tried to be family friendly there for a while in terms of their ad campaign. Some of you remember that. You know, it was like, oh, bring the family, and they show you the roller coasters on top of buildings and, you know, all these kinds of fun things that your kids can do. Of course, they have to wear blindfolds on their way to all of those things and on their way back and in the hotel and everywhere else. They have to be, you know, practically stunned so that they can't see what's really going on in Las Vegas. But now the cat's out of the bag again and they have that, you know, whatever stays and happens in Vegas stays in Vegas theme. And they're not talking about riding roller coasters. They're talking about you getting away from your everyday life and cutting loose and getting drunk and meeting prostitutes and, you know, do whatever you want in Vegas and then go to your conference in the daytime. Maybe fewer people would come to a conference if it was in Hanford. But they'd have superior dairy and they could... It makes me sad. They could ride there in that little red fire truck that the Chamber of Commerce has. They could go, uh, they could see the Muscle Slough Tragedy Memorial. There's a lot of things you could do that are wholesome. Carnegie Museum, Vegas, Hanford. Uh, be careful what you choose. It's just wrong. I submit to plan an event in a place that's called Sin City. Where are you going to have your event? Sin City. Doesn't that sound great? Yeah, not really. It all reminds me of Pleasure Island in Disney's version of Pinocchio. The boys can drink and cuss and smoke and vandalize and fight all they want. But in the end, they're enslaved as beasts of burden. It's a great illustration of what sin really leads to, and that is slavery. Verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Just before Babylon is destroyed, God still has people there. 
Right there in the headquarters of the Antichrist, at Satan's earthly throne, God stations people. It's their spiritual assignment. This, to me, is the most incredible thing in this chapter. I'm interested in knowing that there's a Babylon on the Euphrates River in the last days and that God's going to destroy it. But I'm more interested in the fact that God has Christians like you and I living in that wicked city. They're godly because they've not yet shared in her sins. Are they about to fall into sin? You know, when you first read that verse, come out of her lest you share in her sins, it almost sounds like they're wavering. They're right on the edge. They can't take it anymore and they're going to give in. I don't think that's what's being said at all. There's an alternate reading that says that what is being communicated is that they are to come out of Babylon before they share in the punishments for sin that are about to be meted out in the plagues that are about to be sent upon her. And I like that because it better fits the context. They are stationed there by God on assignment from heaven, but before the city is burned, they are called to come out of it. Their work is done. Lot, in the book of Genesis, would be an example. Now, true, the angels had to drag him out of Sodom. He was reluctant. That's not the example we're going for. The example Lot gives us is that God calls his people out prior to destruction. Remember, the angels came to Lot and they said, we're here to get you and your family out of Dodge. We can't destroy the city until you leave. And they they got him out of the city and then they destroyed it. And that's what's happening in tribulation Babylon. God has his people stationed there and he says, okay, guys, now is the time to get out because judgment is about to fall and they leave. We sometimes call this the doctrine of separation in terms of being uh, in the world. And it's still best summarized by the old Christian cliche, be in the world, but not of the world. And so people say, well, what does it mean to be separated unto God? You're in the world, obviously, but you're not of the world. Jesus prayed for us, saying to our Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Uh, If Jesus prayed this way for us, it should encourage our prayers as well. Maybe you're in some kind of a, a struggling situation. Instead of praying to get out of it, maybe you should pray that you would be strengthened and kept from the evil one who's trying to stumble you in it. Paul the Apostle said this, he says, I wrote to you, he's writing to the believers in Corinth, he said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul said, I was dealing with an issue, uh, I, I, there's, you guys are having fellowship with Christians, professed Christians who uh, are nevertheless living in all these immoral ways, and I told you not to have fellowship with them, but try to seek their repentance, and you misunderstood me to think that I was talking about getting away from non-believers, because if we get away from all non-believers, how are they going to hear the gospel? We are in the world. We're on assignment from God. Hanford is my posting, for example, as a pastor. I'm here unless I receive orders somewhere else. And I don't go to the mailbox every day looking for that. Uh, You know, this is where God has me. And you know what? This is where God has you. If you're here, this is where God has you. 
Do you want to get out of Hanford? Don't raise your hand. That's rhetorical. <laughs> Please. Do you want to get out of California? I think you need to be able to say, Jesus is calling me out of here to fill in the blank. doesn't matter where. But the idea is that it's the Lord calling you. He must send you. You can't just bring him along. You and I are not to make our own plans, look at a map and say, what kind of climate do I like? What kind of recreation do I like? What would really float my boat? Oh, this, this city looks great. Lord, that's where we're going. Bless me when I get there. Do you want to stay in Kings County? We never think about the people who actually want to stay in Kings County. Kings County is a wonderful place, is it not? Some of you moved here. You, you want to be here. You came here from someplace else that was, ugh, And you love it here. But you know what? Staying here is really up to the Lord, too. The, the thoughts that we have that, oh, I'll be here for the rest of my life. I'm plugged in. Hey, you need to deal with God. Now, it's a fallacy that Christians sometimes have that if you want to go someplace, God won't let you. And if you hate it someplace, that's where God's going to put you. I mean, come on. Now, it is true you might go someplace that you hadn't chosen or you don't know anything about and it's kind of weird at first, Hanford, but <laughs> God has a reason for that. And as you look back over things, you think, yeah, I would have never chosen this place. But God had his reason. I use an example of first service. I don't know if it went across very well, but um, take your young adults, your children, or you, if you're a young adult here, maybe you're making college plans. Now, it, it's just a fact of life that many people find their spouse in college. It just happens. I don't know. I guess you're that age and you're thinking marriage, you know, and stuff. It's kind of an engagement college, I guess, or whatever. It just happens. So what's important? It's important that you pick the college that God wants you to go to. Because he has foreknowledge of who's going to go there too and who you might meet and hook up with. And so uh, even at that level, you know, you have to trust the Lord and say, Lord, here's some choices I have. Lead me and guide me and, and know the will of God. Verse 6, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. The speaker announces the non-believers getting double what they dealt out to believers, and that lets us know that it's going to be hard for the believers in tribulation Babylon. Verse 7, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow, for she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. We get discouraged in our struggle against the world. Non-believers seem to prosper having this world's good and goods. Just wait. In this life, but especially in the next, sin pays its awful wages, death and eternal conscious torment. You should never envy the non-believer. You should have compassion on them. doesn't matter how much they have um, because this is all they're going to have if they don't meet Christ. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Here's an interesting geologic note. The original building site of Babylon is known to be full of bitumen, 
a substance filled with hydrocarbons and therefore highly flammable. And so as God sends fire down from heaven, the very foundations upon which Babylon uh, will be rebuilt are going to burn. It reminds me of people who build houses in weird locations on the side of cliffs and, and anybody in Southern California in the foothills. Oh, you're prone to mudslides and wildfires? That's where I want to live, right there. And, uh, you know, it's a free country. You can do what you want. But um, same thing in hurricane country. Hey, hurricanes come through here all the time and destroy houses. Let's build. Uh, Babylon, it's going to burn. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep. And they will lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. A person's reaction to something says a lot about them. Weeping and lamenting Babylon's destruction says that the world's final rulers will all be wicked, immoral, malevolent individuals. Do you have any reactions that are not quite Christ-like? Do you sometimes react to something and then the Holy Spirit maybe pricks your conscience and says, hey, that's not really very much like Jesus. Well, if you do, think about it, talk to the Lord about it, let him make the necessary adjustments. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Babylon will be a commercial hub for the world. Merchants from all over the earth will supply her. And then some of Babylon's commerce is listed in verse 12 and 13. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet of every, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cinnamon, incense, fragrant oil, frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, the bodies and the souls of men. It reads like the various departments of a department store, does it not? Uh, you find jewelry and clothing and home furnishings and cosmetics. There's a food court, even automotive as far as horses and chariots. That's a stretch, but it's a funny stretch at least. What about this phrase, bodies and souls of men? Well, the bodies probably means slave trade. That would include the sex slave trade. Already rampant today in the world, in Babylon, it will be unchecked. When we frequented the Philippines in the mid to late 1980s, it was sadly popular in that country for European men to vacation. And while they were there, they would purchase the companionship of very young boys. And you would see this all over the place. And it was certainly not legal, but no one was doing a thing about it. It was very disgusting. How, though, do you trade in the souls of men? Well, false religions do this every day. Let's say you go to confession, you say prayers for your penance, and then you're told that your sins are absolved. Are they absolved? No, of course not. Not unless you've come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Not unless you're born again. Not unless he's given you his righteousness and taken upon himself your sin. Any religion that is not biblical Christianity is trading in the souls of men. And they are lying to you about your eternal destiny, telling you that your soul is going to be okay because you're riding a bicycle or knocking on doors or whatever it is you're doing, and you're going to wake to find that your soul is not okay, that it's been held captive uh, all those years. Verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for is gone from you. 
and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. This word rendered fruits means late summer. That's because in the East, this is the season when fruits ripen, and hence the word is synonymous with fruit of all kind. The reference is to anything that would be regarded as an article of luxury. This section reads almost like a eulogy at a funeral. The merchants are eulogizing the city of Babylon when they ought to be rejoicing that her evil reign is ended forever. The merchants of these things, verse 15, who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. When I lived in Southern California, my childhood home in the foothills was often threatened by wildfires. There's a morbid fascination with watching a fire advance and waiting as long as possible to evacuate. And that's kind of the scene here as they wait and watch from a distance but close enough to feel the heat. Verse 16, saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ships, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance, cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? Shipmaster can be the ship owner or the helmsman. Uh, Everyone who sails to a place means every voyager. can be a merchant or a passenger. Uh, The sailors are those who make up the crew of a ship. And last, there are people who gain their living from the sea by fishing and ferrying passengers or building ships. And so what I think is happening here is that Uh, it's concentrating on one aspect of the merchandising and the supplying of merchandise in uh, tribulation Babylon, and it's showing the all-pervasive nature. The the world comes to absolutely depend on the commerce of Babylon. Uh, You know, imagine, uh, you know, we've had stock market crashes or things happen in Europe, and there are rippling effects all over the world, but imagine now in the end times something that happens that actually affects the entire planet in terms of its economy. And that's what we're looking at here. Verse 19, they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. As I said, it may be only one city, but the rest of the world will be impacted by its fall. Instead of lamenting what they think is an interruption to world commerce and wondering how we're going to get back in business, the inhabitants of the earth should realize their time is actually very short because this seventh and final bowl of wrath being poured out means that Jesus is coming. He's on its heels. And so the world, ignoring, ignoring, ignoring the warnings of God throughout the tribulation, instead of realizing, hey, with the destruction of Babylon... Jesus Christ is returning, they still look to the world to try and resolve their problems. Let's skip verse 20 for a moment. Verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall be not found anymore. This then is the final destruction of Babylon, the one predicted by Isaiah and Jeremiah. Then we're told that tribulation in Babylon will be a cultural center. Verse 22, the sound of harpists, musicians, flautists, and uh, trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. Music, art, fine cuisine, that's all being described here, what we commonly refer to as culture. 
it will cease once Babylon is burned. Verse 23, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. The voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. Your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. The reference to the light of a lamp would in John's day mean a feast or a party, like a wedding reception. Babylon apparently will be a favored vacation destination for honeymooners and vacationers of all sorts. But it's going to be lights out for Babylon. And then it mentions a deception here through sorcery, which is uh, our, the Greek word pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy or drugs. I wonder just how medicated people will be in the tribulation. You ever think about that? I mean, we're super over-medicated now as a culture, uh, not just in our country, but all over the world. How much more then when you're trying to deal with the judgment of the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls? you imagine those doctor appointments? Uh, what's happening? Uh, they just let some demons out of the river Euphrates. I'm feeling a little stressed about it. <laughs> Wondering if there's something you can give me. This fresh off the shelves of Babylon Pharmacy. Babylon Rx, right to your home. Take two of these. You'll be fine. I think that's what's being said here. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. As the headquarters of the world-dominating coexist religious system for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Babylon will be involved in ordering the persecution and martyrdom of believers in Jesus Christ. You can believe anything you want as long as it's not biblical Christianity, as long as it's not Jesus Christ, that we can't tolerate. Now, it only gets worse for believers once the Antichrist declares himself God. And there might be something more here, too. It says, in her was found. Could it be that in future Babylon, executions will take place for those who refuse the beast's mark, who refuse to worship him? Will that be where they're extradited to, to be uh, executed? Possibly. So how do believers stationed in tribulation Babylon do it? How do they remain victorious while surrounded by so much evil? Well, they would do it the same way God's people were victorious over Babylon in the past. If you missed Geno's study from the first chapter of Daniel a couple of weeks ago, you should listen to it online or at least download the transcript and read it. Back in the 6th century BC when Babylon was a big deal, Daniel and his three friends, all of them teenagers, very young teenagers, were stationed there by God. True, Nebuchadnezzar came and he took them he brought them there into exile, but I think we know, looking at the life of Daniel, we can understand that God stationed him there. That was his posting. They didn't just survive, they thrived, spiritually speaking. It's going to be like that again in Tribulation Babylon, except that the Antichrist, indwelt and empowered by Satan, will be much more terrible than the terrible Nebuchadnezzar. Nevertheless, God has his people there and they will not succumb. In between the Babylons of Daniel and the tribulation, we can survive and thrive in the world we find ourselves in. We do it by maintaining spiritual separation, by being in the world, of course, but not of the world. We decide moment by moment to look to the Lord rather than lust for the world. By the indwelling spirit, yield ourselves to God rather than to the flesh. Now, I've left verse 20. It's kind of a standalone verse tells us to be surrendered to Jesus while being stressed by the world. Let's read it. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. 
We mentioned earlier that the non-believers in Babylon would receive what they deserve for having mistreated God's people. Tribulation Babylon will, in fact, receive the punishment that the spirit of Babylon has always, throughout history, deserved. In other words, we talked about that last week, uh, the spirit of Babylon, the presence of the influence of Babylon from the time of Nimrod forward. And God is saying here that, hey, that's all going to be judged once and for all in Tribulation Babylon. The ones told to rejoice over her are already in heaven, and they are called apostles and prophets. Now, apostles and prophets are mentioned together in the New Testament as the gifted men God used to begin the church. You see that in Ephesians 2 and 3. This might then be a reference to the church already safe in heaven before the destruction of Babylon. In fact, we believe the church will be safe in heaven before the tribulation even begins, having been resurrected and raptured. If verse 20 is talking about us, then it reminds us that we live in a day of grace in which patience is required as we wait for the Lord. The world around us, influenced by the spirit of Babylon, it's an enemy. We face many stresses and as a result much suffering from the world on account of being believers in Jesus Christ. We are to become and remain surrendered to Jesus despite the stresses of our situation. That's our calling, to be patiently waiting for the Lord to return and to continue to walk in the Spirit. Now, if you're not a believer, you need to surrender yourself to the Lord. You need to agree with Him at once that you're a sinner and that He is your only Savior. Uh, No religion, no philosophy, nothing can save you except Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. If you're a believer, check yourself by this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I think it'll minister to your spirit. Don't keep back any part of your life. Make a full surrender of every, every inclination of your heart. Work to have but one purpose and one aim. For this purpose, give God complete control of your heart. Cry out for more of the divine control of the Holy Spirit so that as your soul is preserved and protected by Him, it may be directed into one river and only one, that your life may run deep and pure, clear and peaceful, its only banks being God's will, its only river, the love of Christ and a desire to please him. If you want a physical example of that, I think, as I mentioned earlier, Daniel uh, and his three friends, but especially Daniel, purposing in his heart to serve the Lord, uh, not just through Babylon, but after that in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. um, And you will see Uh, the power of God to keep you in the world, but not of it. Cry out, Spurgeon suggested. What should we cry for? Here's what Jesus said. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask for him? 